Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and hold them in your hands. You can open them up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we'll be today. Genesis, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3. I'm all discombobulated by the batteries. Genesis chapter 3. Now, the season leading up to Christmas in, in the church is often called Advent. Um, and that's because it looks forward to the advent, to the coming, to the birth of Christ. Um, sometimes we do an Advent sermon series, sometimes we don't. This year, we're going to do an Advent sermon series. So what we're going to be doing for most of December is tracing the events leading up to the birth of Christ. We're mainly going to be in the book of Luke. But this idea of Advent, of waiting for the birth of Christ, it's not just a New Testament thing. It's actually something that begins in the very early pages of Scripture. We could say the entire storyline of the Old Testament, even, is anticipating the birth of Christ. And so this morning, that's where we're going. We're going back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. From the earliest pages of Scripture, as we'll see, we find mankind dealing with sin, sorrow, suffering, sickness, the very things that you and I deal with today. Some of you have dealt with illness this year. Some of you have dealt with great sorrow. Some of you have lost relationships. Some of you have seen the effects of sin in your own lives and in the lives of others. Some of you have felt deeply the weight of your own sinfulness. And so when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, to the beginning of the story, really we find ourselves looking in a mirror. As we look at Adam and Eve, We see that we're not so different from them and that the world that we live in now is the result of those early events in the garden. And that just like Adam and Eve, we are in need of a Savior. In our text this morning, we see both the dark, bleak backdrop of human history against which God's gracious promise of a Redeemer brilliantly shines forth like a diamond. And really what we'll see this morning is that from the earliest pages of Scripture, God has promised hope for you and for me. Let's read our text. Um, We're going to do this a little differently this morning. We're going to read chunks of the text at a time. So I'm going to read Genesis 3.15 now, and then we're going to go back and kind of walk our way through Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15 is our main text for this morning. God's speaking to the serpent here, and he says, I will put enmity... Between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray as we come to God's word. (coughs) Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you this morning that we are able to go back to the earliest days of human history. And that you give us answers here Lord, for why the world is the way it is, why we are the way we are. But that in this text, you also give us promise. You give us hope that our condition and the world that we live in is not permanent. But that there is a Redeemer. There is a Savior. There is one who is coming who will make things right. My Lord, I pray that you would place Christ Jesus before us today, that you would open our eyes to see him promised here in this text. 
and that you would give us hope in him, an everlasting hope. Lord, your word tells us all who hope in him shall never be put to shame. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to proclaim your word clearly and faithfully today, that Jesus would be honored and that your people would be helped. And I pray this in his name. Amen. In the beginning, the very first words of Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going all the way back. Right? God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 describe this creative process in detail, describing how God uh, formed the earth and filled it with life in six days. And in the early days, there was no sin. God looks at his creation and it said over and over and over, it is good, it is good, it's good, it's good. And at the very end, it is very good. It is very good. God looked at the world he had made without sin, without suffering, without sorrow. He said it is very good. And of course, in the beginning, God also made man and woman on the sixth day. He, he didn't create them through the natural means of childbirth like you and I came into this world, but through supernatural means. Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, and Eve was formed from Adam's rib. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, and, and we need to understand this so that we understand the importance of what we're going to see in Genesis 3. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created in a very different state than the one you and I find ourselves in today. And the words of the Second London Baptist Confession, they were created in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts, and the power to fulfill it. Adam and Eve were created in a state of, of perfect righteousness, and they enjoyed perfect and unhindered fellowship and friendship with God. That's the world they lived in. That was the reality that they dwelt in, in the Garden of Eden. But when we arrive at chapter 3 of the story, there's a tragic turn. Let's read verses 1 through 13. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, uh, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And we call this event right here, the fall. Call it the fall. That's our first major point, the fall. We, we call it this because man falls from his original state of righteousness. He's disobeyed 
God. Sin has entered the world. Eve's approached in the garden by a serpent, the craftiest of all the beasts of the field. And this was no ordinary serpent. This was Satan who had possessed a serpent. And who from this moment forth, right, Satan and the serpent would always be associated together. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, at the other end of the Bible, Satan is described as that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And deception's exactly what we see here, isn't it? Satan the serpent's mission was to deceive and tempt Eve into disobeying God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve then goes to share the fruit with Adam, and in that moment, everything changed. Not just for Adam and Eve, but for you and I. See, Adam is a covenant head. He's a representative of all humanity. And when Adam sinned and fell, in the words of Romans 5.19, the many were made sinners. When Adam fell, we all fell with him. We read that extensively in Romans 5 today. And when we look through these first 13 verses, this beginning of the fall, we begin to see the effects of the fall immediately already taking place. When we look at verse 7, we, we see Adam and Eve's eyes open. They're struck by the reality that they are naked. They've been naked this whole time, and it hasn't even been a thought in their minds. But now, their eyes are open, they realize they are naked, and they cover themselves up. They experience a feeling never known before. Shame. Shame. Suddenly, they're, they're fearful of being exposed before one another, and the innocence and purity of their nakedness is turned into shame. Have you ever felt shameful before? Have you ever been embarrassed or ashamed, this is its origin. And this shame, of course, leads them to try to cover up and hide from one another. Adam and Eve, husband and wife, they now fear complete openness and honesty with each other, and they feel they must hide themselves. They cover themselves in fig leaves. Who among us has not felt this feeling of hiding things about ourselves out of fear and shame? Who among us has not at times tried to put on a false front for the approval of others? Friend, this is the origin of our need to hide from others. This is why we deceive others and try to make ourselves appear different than we are. This is why we're ashamed to confess our sin to one another, right here. And so we see in verse 7, there's a rift, there's a break, a tearing in the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with each other for such a short time. But as bad as this was, this wouldn't even be the worst aspect. We look at verse 8. Adam and Eve are not only hiding from each other, but the effects of the fall causes them to hide from God. They're in the garden, this paradise that they've enjoyed, and they hear the sound of God walking through the garden. Prior to this, I have no doubt that they enjoyed walks with God through His garden many times in free relationship with Him. But here their response is not to run to God, but to run from God. As soon as they hear Him, they run and hide. Their, their sin has caused them not to be drawn to God, but to be repelled by Him. Their, their friendship with Him has been turned into a terrified and guilty fear. This is the condition into which all of us are born, every single human being. John 3, 19-20 says, People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be Exposed. That's the inheritance that Adam and Eve 
have left us. Being born in such a state that God's goodness, His purity, His light, His holiness is a terrifying thing to us in our natural state and we run far, far from it. This impulse is still alive and well today in the heart of fallen man. That's why the word repentance in our, our culture at large has become an unfashionable word. This idea of turning to God. Ooh, I don't like the sound of that. This right here, what we see, man hiding from God, that's why many people put the Bible aside to form a God that fits their palate rather than worshiping the God who exists. This is why so many people run after other things instead of God. God is an authority that holds man accountable. Who likes to be held accountable? Adam and Eve did not want to be held accountable here. God, of course, draws Adam and Eve out of their hiding place. He asks them what happens. But as we look at verses 12 and 13, we, we see something else introduced. We see the introduction of conflict into the world. God asks them what happened. And what does Adam say? The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. Adam blames Eve and God simultaneously. Right? He's doubling down. And then Eve answers, well, the, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve blames the serpent. Nobody's taking responsibility for their own sin. They point fingers at each other. It's conflict. And so we see the spiritual and relational effects of the fall here. We see Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, all of us, separated from one another by shame, blame, conflict. We see people separated from God by their sin and His holiness. And the world, friends, has not changed. Since Genesis chapter 3, we're living in the same exact world today. And we feel it all too well. But spiritual and relational effects are not the only effects of the fall. Look down to verses 16 through 19 as we see the effects that God introduces into the world as a curse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. These are the physical effects of the fall here. In verse 16 God tells the woman that her pain in childbirth as a result of her sin will now be greatly increased. This was a process, uh, giving birth, this was a process that was supposed to be a completely joyful fulfillment of God's assignment to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. But now it would be accompanied by great pain. A reminder every time a child was born of the curse of the fall. In addition to that, the woman's desire would be against her husband. In Hebrew, really, this means that her desire would be to rule over him rather than to submit to him. And this doesn't just affect Eve, but all women who would come after. And to the man, God declares in verse 17 through 19, his life would be one of constant 
futile but necessary labor. He lived in a garden where every food he could ever want provided for him was just there. He just cultivated the garden and it was full of these delightful fruits. But now, God says, no, now you will need to work by the sweat of your brow just to survive. Just to survive. And it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to deal with thorns and thistles. Do you think there was a single thorn or thistle in the garden? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not in a way that would hinder the growth of those, those wonderful plants. But now, that would be Adam's nemesis. A cursed ground that he would have to toil just to survive. And again, this is not just Adam in view, but all after him. And in verse 19, we see the greatest aspect of the curse, death. Now, God had warned Adam and Eve that this would happen. He says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day that you do it, you will surely die. Now, prior to the fall, prior to this, there was no death. There was no death. If Adam and Eve had obeyed God, they would have received eternal life. They would have been shown to the tree of eternal life and given to eat of its fruit. But no, now death is universal. God is faithful to his word and now Adam and Eve and all after them die. And we're reminded of this whenever we lose a loved one, whenever we consider our own brief lives, whenever we realize we are dust and to dust we shall return. All people deal with this physical death with the result of the fall. After this, after all that we've seen, after all the effects of the fall, how could mankind live with God in the Garden of Eden? How could man's fellowship and friendship with God continue in the same way it had before? It couldn't. And so in verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They're sent away from the presence of God. They cannot dwell with him in close proximity anymore. This is without a doubt the second most tragic moment in the Bible. Adam and Eve and all of us with them, sent away from the presence of a good and holy God. And that defines the world that we live in today. And, and really, when we read the Bible, when we read the Bible, the rest of the story is how to get back to the garden. It's how to get back to that dwelling with God. That's really the theme that comes back again and again and again. Genesis chapter 3 explains why the world is the way it is. It explains the origin of evil in humanity. It explains why we sin, why we suffer, why we get sick, why we have sorrow, and why we ultimately and universally die. It reveals to us the seriousness of disobeying God and the cost and curse that breaking His commands brings upon each one of us. But this story doesn't end there, I'm so thankful the Bible has more pages in it than three or four. And even here, in the midst of the, the darkest day, the second darkest day in history, there is a great 
promise given in verse 15, the first promise of the gospel. The first promise of the gospel. God speaks to the serpent and says, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The, the promise here in Genesis 3.15 is in many ways subtle. It's not as explicit or specific as Isaiah 7.14 that we read. It's not as clear as Isaiah chapter 9 regarding the coming of Christ, but that doesn't make it any less rich or any less hopeful for us. Genesis 3.15 is a promise of the covenant of grace. It's the promise of the new covenant that would come that would restore everything that had been lost in the fall and more. And in this overarching promise of Genesis 3.15, there's three specific promises that we can bring out that bring fallen man tidings of comfort and joy. Three promises here. The first promise is the promise of friendship with God restored. Friendship with God restored. Now, now think about the fall for a moment. <clears throat> the, Satan, uh, the serpent, Satan, he enters the garden, he tempts Eve, this leads to Adam's deception. Well, the serpent, in essence, gained two allies against God in that moment, didn't he? He brought Adam and Eve over to his side. The friendship between man and God was broken in the fall. And, and man now becomes, naturally, an enemy of God. Having a nature that runs from God, that rebels against God. That, that doesn't say, I want to worship the God who made me, but rather that seeks to make gods of our own imagination. But look what God says to the serpent in the first part of verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is a promise that the alliance that had been formed between the woman and the serpent would be broken. And, and that in this, God promises to set things right and bring the woman and her offspring into conflict and enmity with the serpent rather than friendship with the serpent. This is nothing less than bringing fallen man back into fellowship and friendship with God rather than Satan. There's really only two possible positions for you or I to be in. You're, you're either in enmity with God and, and friendship with Satan, or you are in friendship with God and enmity with Satan. There's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland category here, right? There's no neutrality. We are born in a state of sinfulness, and our default position is enmity with God and alliance with Satan. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 describes our natural position as dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who we once followed. That's who people just born into this world, apart from Christ, will follow. Whether you're conscious of this or not, not everybody's you know, a, an acknowledged Satanist or something. That's not what I'm saying. But it is to say that apart from Christ, you will follow Satan's agenda. That's what you will pursue. You will not pursue the things that honor God. And yet, God, by His grace, promises to turn this all around. The woman and Satan will not be friends, but enemies. Sin made people enemies of God, but grace makes people friends 
of God. This is a promise of a restored relationship which was lost in the garden. But notice, who is the one that must do this work? God. God. I will put enmity between you and the woman. The woman cannot make herself again a friend of God. Her sin has taken that away. She has offended a holy God. God must be the one, by His grace, to reconcile sinners to Himself. How does He do that? That leads us to the next promise we see here. The second promise is the birth of a Redeemer. The birth of a Redeemer. We read that this enmity would not just be between the serpent and the woman, but between her offspring and the serpent's offspring. There's a promise of offspring on both sides. The promise that the woman will have children, that her offspring will be in enmity with the serpent's offspring. Now there's a few things going on here. A few things going on here. What does it mean when we talk about the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman? Well, this doesn't refer to humanity over here and then like snake babies over here. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking uh, about a spiritual dynamic here. That there are two spiritual groups, two spiritual lines that have continued in humanity throughout history. Here we're talking about two spiritual lines in humanity. The offspring of the serpent being those who walk in darkness and in rebellion against God. And the offspring of the woman, which are those who walk in covenant with God. Now, in a sense, the whole storyline of Scripture is in view here. What happens immediately after the fall? Cain and Abel are born. Cain and Abel are born. Cain murders his brother and refuses to offer right worship to God. He's of the line of the serpent. Abel honors God, but he's killed. He's of the line of the woman. Well, Adam and Eve have another child named Seth. And at the end of chapter 4, it's, it's implied that Seth and his descendants worship God, right? We see the line of the woman continuing. Well, Seth is the ancestor of Noah. Then from Noah comes Shem, Shem, Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, David, all the way down the line. But the other lines of Noah prove to be spiritually the lines of the serpent. They become the idolatrous pagan Nations. And when we look at the genealogies of the Bible, in a way we're seeing these two lines of offspring delineated, extending throughout biblical history. And it's in light of these, these lines of offspring that the Redeemer comes into view. Have you ever wondered why the genealogies are in the Bible? Have you ever wondered why they're there when you're doing your Bible reading plan and you hit Genesis chapter 5 or you hit some of the genealogies in, in uh, Samuel or in Judges and you're Goodness, what, what does this tell me? This is what it tells you. It is tracing the line of the woman until that line terminates in the Redeemer. In the Redeemer. It would be through the promise of this offspring that the ultimate Redeemer would be born, that a Savior would be born, that through her offspring, the Chosen One would come. Ultimately, we, we, we look down the road and we see that's of the nation of Israel which was the means by which the Messiah would be born in later history. Now the serpent would do everything he could to prevent the offspring of the woman from continuing to be born. He, he would fight hard to derail God's plan to bring about a redeemer from Israel. A.W. A. Pink says that the famines mentioned in Genesis, think Joseph, were the first efforts of the enemy to destroy the fathers of the chosen race. The edict of Pharaoh to destroy all the male children. 
the Egyptian attack at the Red Sea, the assaults of the Canaanites when Israel was in the land, the plot of Haman with Esther, are all so many examples of the enmity between Satan and the woman. And, and this continues into the New Testament. When Jesus, the promised offspring, is born, what does King Herod do? He tries to kill all of the young children in the land, all the young male children. When Jesus is an adult and he's baptized, what does Satan try to do? He tries to tempt him into doing that which goes against his father's will. Satan's mission throughout the entirety of the scripture is to uh, work against the offspring of the woman, to work against this redeemer that would come. As we'll see in the third promise in a, in a moment, though, the woman's offspring will be victorious. But there's something else that I think we can notice here, something that's often overlooked. Um, I think that we even see the virgin birth hinted at here. And most of the time in the Bible, it's the man who is credited with the seed, right? The patriarch of the family is the one who the lineage is counted by. But here the focus is entirely upon the woman, on the seed of the woman. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? There's no earthly father explicitly mentioned in such a phrase. It's, it's the offspring who will come directly from a woman that will be the redeemer. This hints, I believe, at the virgin birth. Uh, that, that A birth only from a woman without any earthly father, that only occurs once. In the birth of Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, without a physical earthly father, born to the Virgin Mary. Now through Eve came temptation and sin, but God would reverse things so that through Mary, another woman would come a Redeemer. No other offspring of the woman would prove to be this Redeemer. Not Noah, not Abraham, not David, not the greatest of men in the Old Testament. They would all sin. They would all fall short. And though they would be used by God, they would not be the capital R Redeemer. No other offspring would be that Redeemer but Jesus. A Redeemer who would come for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Saving people not just from his own nation, but every nation that's descended from Adam and Eve, all the nations of the earth. And this brings us to the third promise. The promise of the serpent's defeat at the very end of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the very end of Genesis 3.15 tells us just what this redeeming offspring of the woman would do. He will do battle with the serpent. He'll do battle with the serpent. Eventually this conflict between the line of the woman and uh, the line of the serpent would reach such a point that the offspring of the woman will engage in combat with that ancient serpent, Satan himself. Now, if you look at the verse, there's parallelism here. There's, there's a similar phrasing. The serpent shall strike the offspring's heel, wounding him, but not defeating him forever. So be a serious and painful blow, but not one that will ultimately destroy the offspring of the woman. This refers to the suffering of Christ, to the offspring. Satan filled Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And I'm sure Satan was rejoicing as the religious leaders of Israel, as King Herod and Pontius Pilate, all worked together to crucify the Son of God. Hebrews 2.14 says that Satan has the power of death, and it was with this venomous bite that the serpent bit the heel of the offspring. But that wound would not lay the Son of God and the Son of Man down in death forever. Look what the text says, He shall bruise your head. 
Friends, that's a death blow. That's a death blow. That is Jesus crushing the head of the serpent in victory. The offspring of the woman who will ultimately and finally triumph over the serpent will destroy him and eliminate his power over the woman's line, over his people once for all. When did Christ crush Satan's head? Ultimately through the crucifixion and resurrection. Again, Hebrews tells us that since the children, the offspring of the woman we could say, us Christians share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, that's the serpent, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It was through his death that Jesus, the Redeemer, the offspring of the woman, destroyed the one who had the power of death. It was through his resurrection that Jesus provided redemption for his people from that sting, from the curse of death that had been hanging over humanity's head since Genesis chapter 3. And ultimately at his return, Jesus will throw that ancient serpent into the lake of fire once and for all. He's finished. He's done. Amen. And incredibly, this, this is what's so cool. Right? Not only do we rejoice that the ultimate source of evil is defeated once and for all by the offspring of the woman, but this involves us too. Those who believe in Jesus are counted as being the offspring of the woman with him, and Jesus' victory becomes ours. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. Think about that, friends. You get to place your foot right there with Jesus's, crushing the head of that ancient serpent who has plagued you and all of humanity with sin and evil. Yes, friends, we will triumph with Christ over that ancient serpent. We get to follow our Redeemer to the victory battle. But that victory would never be possible if Jesus was just a mere man like you or me or Abel or Seth or Noah or Abraham or David. Because those men all sinned and you and I sinned. And if Jesus ever sinned, then Satan and death could lay claim to him. That bite to the heel would be fatal. But the scriptures teach that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who partook of a human nature for our sake. Fully God and fully man, only Jesus is able to triumph over Satan and undo the curse that results from the first Adam's sin, delivering us from that lifelong slavery. Only Jesus can do that. And that is the mystery of Christmas. The incarnation of the Son of God. That the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, we, we can't even fathom the inexpressible glory that He enjoyed in fellowship with God the Father from eternity past. We can't even fathom what He, what he set aside or veiled to take on the form and reality of a human baby. Is there anything more humble than I, I mean we can't even we can't even fathom the depth of his humiliation in being born in the backwoods of Palestine to a young girl so that we could be redeemed from the first sin of our first parents from our own sin from the curse of living in this fallen world and yet he has done it And so in this verse in Genesis 3:15 there are great promises of grace for you for you in the birth of this Redeemer, there's the promise of restored friendship with God. A promise that those who believe in the Savior that God has sent, Jesus Christ, will be reconciled to Him. 
that that enmity will be released and uh, removed, that you and I will be fully forgiven and are fully forgiven of our sin and made friends with God. That is a promise for you that comes through Christ Jesus. There's the promise of deliverance from Satan, a promise that Satan will never be able to destroy Jesus or his kingdom or his people. A promise of victory over the evil one and the effects of his malicious plans. There's the promise for you of rescue from sin and evil, a promise that Jesus will remove the effects of the curse, bringing life and joy and peace and rest to his people. In measure now and in fullness it is returned, making for us a new heavens and a new earth that will be uncorrupted by sin. That's right, Jesus brings us back to the garden. He brings us back to the garden. You read the book of Revelation, what does it end with? A garden. That's how the new heaven and new earth is described. A garden with a tree of life in the middle. That tree that Adam and Eve didn't get to eat from. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you get to eat as much as you want and have life abundantly. That is a promise for you here in this text. But if you have not trusted the offspring of the woman, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ, if you do not believe in him, then these promises are not yours. You are still in enmity with God, regardless of what you may think. You're actually a member of Satan's kingdom. Whether you realize it or not, you are condemned in your sins. You're facing physical and eternal death. But no matter who you are, these promises can and will be yours if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They can and will be yours if you trust Him as your Redeemer. They can and will be yours if you believe that His death and resurrection are what God has provided to deal with your sins. So let me plead with you. If you do not know Christ, believe in Him today. Receive these promises. They are so rich and they are so free, given to you by faith. And these promises, this verse, really bring us all the way forward over thousands and thousands and thousands of years to Palestine. First century Palestine to a little town called Nazareth where a young girl named Mary is visited by an angel who brings good news of great joy that the Redeemer is about to be born. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you. We, we, we just marvel, Lord, that you are not a God who plans on the fly. But we see, Lord, that here, immediately following the fall, you already had a plan in place to redeem your people. That you already knew what you would do to save fallen man. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And Lord, when we consider what Adam had in the garden, <coughs> though it was great, Though it was sweet, and though, Lord, we would, I'm sure, trade anything in this world to live in that place, Lord, with you. Lord, help us to consider that through Christ, the second Adam, we receive so much more than the first Adam had. That, Lord, not only do we receive full fellowship with you, not only do we receive, uh, Lord, these promises, 
but we are made co-heirs with Christ. That we are brought to share in that which rightly belongs to Jesus, in His glory, in His triumph, in the riches of His grace. Those things, Lord, which though Adam had perfect righteousness, Lord, he could not have been said prior to the fall to be a co-heir with Christ. And Lord, that's the condition we find ourselves in as a result of faith, that what we've gained in Christ is so much greater than what was lost. And so we thank you, Lord, for this sure promise of a Redeemer, Lord, and how you have proven the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 in the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man. And my Lord, I pray that this verse would encourage your people, that they would take fast hold and grip tightly to these promises, claiming them as theirs in Christ, having their hearts filled with hope as they consider what you have given them in this Redeemer. And Father, I pray that if there are then any here who are unbelievers or who are considering Christ or who do not know Him, Lord, or have not trusted Him, that they would do so today, that they would see themselves in Adam and Eve in that fallen state, but that they would also see the Redeemer you have provided for fallen people. That they would come to Christ by faith and believe in Him. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.